Welcome to CinemaScope, a new podcast from True Story FM. Hi, I'm Andy Nelson, co-host of the Next Real Film podcast and Movies We Like. As a passionate movie lover, I've always relished exploring the diverse landscape of cinema. And when you look closer at the taxonomy of genres, subgenres, and film movements, you see an intricate web of interconnections and influences. This complex cinematic family tree spans only 125 years. So how did styles as diverse as the French New Wave, New Queer Cinema, and Ozploitation emerge? What cultural, economic, and technological forces sculpted these styles? And what hidden threads unite them all as part of the same fantastic art form? Those questions sent me on a journey to explore each style and trace their impacts, all to better understand the bridges between different styles. And that led me here to CinemaScope. In each episode, I'll be exploring one particular genre, subgenre, or film movement in depth, inviting expert guests to help us all better understand what defines that style, how it came to be, and what branches it, in turn, influenced on this big cinematic family tree. For example, how did German Expressionism shape American film noir? What's the difference between Westerns, Spaghetti Westerns, and Brazilian Nordesterns? We'll examine the economic and socio-political forces that birthed categories like black exploitation, and we'll spotlight visionary films and directors key to the evolution of different styles. So join me as we explore the complex forces that shape film's evolution and appreciate the diverse creativity possible in its relatively brief history. Let Cinemascope be your guide to understanding this art form we cherish how its genres blend, bounce off each other, and advance a rich tapestry of storytelling innovation. Together, we'll gain a deeper appreciation for this wondrous, shape-shifting medium. Our journey begins soon. Be part of this adventure by subscribing to CinemaScope today. I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to the next reel on True Story FM. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. Next Friday is over. It's time to get the duct tape. Craig, it's going to be different living out here. Don't let your uncle or your cousin get you into any kind of trouble. I'm beginning to like Rancho Cucamonga. Daddy, Craig's here! Boy, you looking good. Why don't you give your auntie sugar some sugar? Oh, damn! You see how we live? We live wild. Uh, I feel five pounds lighter. We live wild. Andy, um, oh. Do people usually keep that much duct tape laying around? That was a lot of duct tape. Well, this movie actually offers a great opportunity to discuss uh, lifestyle choices. Don't you think? <laughs> it does. Yes, it does. Uh, and in in this case, it's a, it's a movie that, that uh, delves into... Um, what happens when you move to Rancho Cucamonga That's after right. winning the lottery? The city away from the city. Have you ever, what do you know about Rancho Cucamonga? I don't know anything about Rancho Cucamonga. I don't know if I've ever even driven through it. Really? Oh. I don't think so. I, I, I can't even picture which area it's in. Well, of the, I, the whole I had valley a, there. <laughs> That's the whole... The whole what? The whole the whole L.A. area. I just don't even know. So Rancho Cucamonga is um, two east of Los Angeles proper. Uh, it's uh, so it's it's sort of north east of Santa Ana, Huntington Beach, like it's inland, and it's definitely L.A. suburb territory. And mm-hmm. uh, I I have never been there, but I went to school with a woman who was from Rancho Cucamonga, and she was delightful. She's very charming. We're friends on Facebook. And I, when I watched this movie, the first thing I thought is, wow, she described her hometown exactly the way it is portrayed in this movie. <laughs> That's funny. So what'd you th- very, very suburban. What, huh? uh, yeah. What do you think? And crazy yeah. stuff going on behind every door. Every door, somebody had a story, some suburb story, something crazy. They're snorting Kool-Aid behind one door. They're, I mean, it's crazy. Uh, what What did you think of this movie? In that regard, it was legit. That's, that's okay, what I thought. It's a, it practically a documentary. 
Yeah, looking at the map, the closest I've been to it is passing it on the 10. Okay. <laughs> it's like as close as I've been. I mean, it's a block away yeah. when you look at the map, but uh, yeah, right. I never, uh, I mean, unless I got off accidentally to get a Starbucks without realizing I stopped in Rancho Cucamonga. Yeah. Ostensibly, I have not. And it's one of those, it's like, I don't even know what what sense to make of Rancho Cucamonga because it is so close to every other little suburb of the same font size on the maps, right? If Rancho Cucamonga (laughs) is right next to Fontana, it's only like 15 blocks from Fontana. And Upland, it's like 10 blocks the other way. And Ontario, Ontario, I think, is bigger than Rancho Cucamonga. It has an airport. That's the one at the airport. And I've been to the airport. Right. Who hasn't been to the airport? (laughs) So. What'd you think? What'd you think of this movie? You really, I mean, obviously, because we're talking so much about the Ontario airport, we must have a lot to say about next Friday. (laughs) It's it's really interesting to see a sequel like this that is for a film that did well for itself. It was a indie film made on a small, well, it wasn't an indie film, but it was made on a small budget um, and made a lot of money. And it was a, you know, first time film director with, uh, you know, people who hadn't been in a lot of movies. And so it felt really fresh. It felt original. It was fun. It felt like, you know, it was giving us a sense of this neighborhood where everybody grew up. And so we really had this idea, this picture painted for us of these characters. And it was a comedy. So everything was big and broad. And it was a pot comedy. So there was a lot of pot uh, smoking. And... uh, but it, and it worked really well. And then they say, you know, what? It, it made a lot of money. And, and by this point, Ice Cube had made his new production company, uh, Cube Vision. And this was the first film under that banner. And so I get it. You know, he wanted to make a movie and under that new banner. And hey, why not do a sequel to this? But Chris Tucker's not back. And DJ Pooh didn't come back to co-write it with Ice Cube. F. Gary Gray is not back directing it. and. It just ends up, and most of the cast is gone. You know, it really, like, we don't have, um, I think I think I counted four people from the original that came yeah. back. I think you can check me on that, but I think I, I counted four people. Um, and so it felt like, it's interesting. I, I feel like there's been a shift in how sequels get made. I feel like this fits into that mold of sequels from like the 80s and 90s where, you know, you would make a sequel, you know, you might bring a person or two back, but you didn't really have to. It didn't really have to continue the story. It just was, it just was basically getting made because they wanted to bank on the success of the original to kind of have a guaranteed return on the sequel. At some point, and I, I don't know when the shift is, it probably in the 90s, all of a sudden sequels they actually are bringing like the full cast back and like the whole team's getting together again. And and it was really exciting to see. And they really started trying to hit for the fences to do something um, bigger and, and, uh, and broader. And I'm talking sequels, like not planned, not like star Wars, empire strikes back types of things. And so I feel like this was at a point when sequels had started shifting and, it just, but it's kind of the old school sequel where, you know, not all the team is here and it ends up hurting. It just feels like an unnecessary sequel. It's like, why are we doing this? The story's not even that great. It's not really giving us anything new. And that's something that James Cameron proved very important when making Aliens is that when you're doing a sequel, you need to not just give them more of the same, but really kind of shift it into something else. And sure, we're in a new location. And so, that feels different, but it just, it doesn't feel like the story is doing anything new or exciting. And so it ends up really feeling like a letdown coming into this film. And so it was, it was a little disappointing. Yeah, it, it, I agree with you. And I feel like that my, my sense is it, this m- movie got made before they realized that that coming back together would bring them joy to do something great. This was a joyless expansion of the Friday cinematic universe. I didn't get the feeling that anybody was uh, really having a a good time uh, making this movie. It all felt uh, particularly rote. um, And 
I guess even, you know, and I, I enjoy Mike Epps. I think he's he's funny, but even Mike Epps was like not just barely putting the pedal down. Like he just he just felt like he wasn't doing all of his thing. Um, and, and you need these characters to do all of their thing if they're going to be standing around Ice Cube, who is, uh, you know, who is a subdued central character, right? He's not the most vivacious, energetic central character. He is made more interesting because of the enthusiasm uh, and the extravagance of the personalities around him. And there, I, I just didn't feel like that connection was being made. Uh, in this movie. And I think the other piece that I, I feel like that where, where this movie really sells itself short is by moving him to Rancho Cucamonga, we take him out of his element. And so much of the heart of this movie is in seeing how he relates to friends, family, uh, uh, people around which he lives and calls home like that's you mean of this of this franchise not of this movie no, no, of, of of the original movie right like yeah, right, part right. of the yeah. joy is watching how he exists in his home in his environment and that that was the heart of this experience of that experience for me moving him to rancho cucamonga even though we're introducing him to literal family right his uncle and his cousin um taking him out of you know his his environment. I really lost a lot uh, of of that uh, of that connection to him, and I think he lost a lot of that connection too. It became sitcommy, right? It became just goofs, just flippant. Like when when it's when we're expected to find it funny just because they're trying to climb over a wall in a funny way, right? That yeah. is the lowest of the low hanging fruit. I mean, they got a dog high. Like that's right. okay. I chuckled at Spuds McKenzie getting high. I, I guess I did chuckle <laughs> at that, but uh, I, I just didn't feel a lot of heart to this. And it made me realize how important um, the the instinct of a guy like F. Gary Gray uh, really is. Yeah. And I don't know, uh, you know, who really put the important elements to the page in the first one, if it was DJ Pooh or Ice Cube. But I do feel like not not having somebody else to at least bounce ideas off of like he did with the first one mm -hmm. that ice cube i just i don't feel like his writing is that strong here and I, the comedy comes off i mean it's still as big and broad like it is in the first one but it starts coming off in in ways where i'm like is this is this funny like am i supposed to find this really funny and i mean it was a very successful film so it obviously found its success with with its audience and um it just yeah it just i wish that i found it as funny as everyone else did because it just i don't know i just feel like it was really lacking and it's definitely over the top and i mean i it certainly chuckled yeah. with some of the stuff i mean there's there are funny characters in this i you know i don't think i disliked any of the characters uh, i think some of them might have been painted a little too broadly and and become a little too one note. And I think that's that's the frustrating part is none of these characters felt as as fully fleshed out as the characters in the first one. And I mean, you know, the first characters in the first one, I, I say fully fleshed out with, you know, a, a grain of salt. There's fleshed out in the context of that film. But I felt like I knew more who about who his sister was and who his mother was. And the, you know, uh, Ezel who was running around the neighborhood stealing everything and the neighbors across the street. Like, I felt like I knew all these people a lot more. Like, you know, when Day Day's boss comes... Pinky. Uh, Pinky, right. When Pinky comes to the shop, it's like, I feel like this is just a huge caricature, caricature character. And I like, I have no sense of Pinky. I'm like, who is this guy? Like, why am I, you know, you know, Pinky, worried Pinky about him? What's a, going on Pinky with him? Pinky wasn't a character. He was a set piece, right? He was a yeah, pawn. Right. There was no purpose for that, it, it, that at all. Like, I, I don't, I don't get it. And, and I recognize it maybe because I don't, I'm just not in on the joke. But some of this movie, like the, the, the first Friday, uh, I, I get a sense that this movie was made both four people, like four black people who lived in and live in uh, neighborhoods like this, who understand and call that 
home and kind of understand what they were going for there that I won't understand. And also for people who were not, you know, uh, uh, part of that community growing up and and don't understand and can still find it funny because of watching these characters going through that experience in their in their lives. Right. And, and so I felt like it was a movie that sort of embraced a lot of sort of backgrounds coming into it. And this movie, I felt like like they were writing for like just for me. You know what I mean? Like we're just going to try and and make Pete laugh and we're going to do whatever we can and it's going to be so broad that you're not going to be able to find the humanity in it anymore. It's just going to be set piece after set piece after set piece. And it, it frustrated me. The Pinky example is a great one because uh it it is the low point of just complete purposelessness in this movie, in spite of the other times where I laugh. I laugh at all the sex stuff. You walk into a sex den of iniquity, I am in hysterics. Like, yeah, the screen <laughs> goes up and it's all a bunch of vibrators. I am, I think that's hysterical. That's fine. Bring all that stuff. But the the record store, I, I didn't I didn't find that funny. I didn't get it. And that's and that's the, where the frustrations lie with this film is that we get a lot more of those sorts of characters. I mean, even the Joker brothers, who I was like, okay, yeah. there's I I feel like there is something that's kind of starting here, but then it never really develops, and it's just like it's just like this vague threat of these three guys living next door with their sister, and I'm like. Is there, like, what am I going to get more out of these guys? And, I mean, they've got some ladies over to kind of party with. They st apparently stole something. But I'm like, I, I just don't, I don't know who they are. And and that was more frustrating for me that I'm, you know, I'm just like, I don't, I don't really care. You know, they, they seem like just a vague threat to be in the house next door. And that was really it. And then they become just like the, uh, you know, they become the MacGuffin because, they're the ones who happen to have the money that uh, Craig and his cousin need to steal from in order to save their house. So it just be kind of becomes this kind of strange story about, you know, it's like that they're only there just to allow the money to be close, I guess. Do you, I, you said uh, something important to me, which is apparently they stole something. I were, do you think at <laughs> any point, the filmmakers intended us to know what these guys were doing with their lives. You think that got cut? <laughs> You're talking about the Joker yeah. brothers or yeah, the Joker brothers. You know, I don't know. It's a it's a weird thing. And this is honestly, it holds true for the first film as well. Because okay, so the Joker brothers apparently stole money from something. I, I'm assuming it's stolen. I don't remember them saying it was stolen. I think Craig maybe assumes that it's stolen. I thought Day Day but said something about it. Being or maybe Day Day. Yeah. yeah, but they're hiding it in some sort of weird container. Like an air pump or something, like some sort of hydraulic yeah, some sort pump. Of, I I could never quite figure out what that thing was that the money's in. And then they, uh, so now Craig says, hey, they've got the money. We need the money. We're going to steal that money so that your house doesn't get uh, repossessed. That's basically their plan, it, which is odd because, okay, so the Joker brothers theoretically stole it. So they're, they're just using stolen money. And it's the same thing that happens in the first film too, right? Mm -hmm. Because the $200 that they use is the money that Debo and Smokey stole from their neighbor when they broke into that house. So it's, it's, a, it's an odd element of these stories that they're, that it's okay to steal from somebody who stole the money in order to save yourself. Um, even though that money isn't even rightfully theirs. So yeah. it's, it's a strange, it's a strange way to kind of break that down. And and I, I found that I bought it more in the last film, I guess, because I I enjoyed those characters. And in this one, I just I really struggled. And so it just it kept going, well, okay, but they're just stealing stolen money that really isn't even theirs to begin with. Well, I think on that note, we should talk about characters that were in the last movie that we did enjoy who are again in this movie and are poorly used, poorly structured. And the the highlights for me are first Debo and second uh, uh Willie, uh John Witherspoon. Um Mr. Jones, Mr. Right? Jones because these these two I felt like uh they just did not know what to do and they they had they needed faces. 
Yeah, Craig is back from the first one, and then their neighbor pops up because Willie sees him at some point and is talking to him about having moved out of the neighborhood. And those are the only four characters that we get from that first film, which is such a disappointment. Debo, yeah, it's like he had so much life in that first film, and it it was a great character. And here... He breaks out of jail at the beginning, which sets Craig and his dad off to to go to Rancho Cucamonga. His dad's moving Craig out there to protect him so that he doesn't get killed by Debo. And Debo ends up spending the bulk of the film kind of in pursuit of him by hiding in Willie's, like the, his um, his dog. Uh, dog, dog catcher, catcher truck. truck yeah oh god in one of the in one of the boxes where uh where he would keep dogs and and he and the other inmate that he broke out with basically they're in these boxes the whole time they get to rancho cucamonga and he all he does is like he stops the the last of the joker brothers from shooting craig and then when he's about to shoot craig Chico, the dog, all of a sudden gets out of his pot uh, haze and attacks Debo, and then the cops are there. I'm like, what? That was that was what we get with Debo for this movie? Yeah, yeah it, it's just awful. And and you know what this this felt like to me, and, and I recognize that we are sometimes accused by our own kith and kin of sometimes being frustrated about sequels having just watched the original. In proximity to it, and I recognize this. You could make a case that this is that, that this is one of those things. If you're a big fan of Next Friday, uh, I can totally understand how listening to us talk about the original Friday and how much we love it, this movie isn't the same movie. Uh, but I, I think you you have to see that this movie being framed around uh, Debo at all is a miss. It it doesn't there is no sense of impending doom or threat after they run the light and Debo is left on the street corner because they're in Rancho Cucamonga. Like there's just no sense that that Debo has any purpose. I get the sense that they had this frame of an idea and they broke the story around Debo getting out of prison because that was a great way to start the movie, right? It's a great way to bring us into the story by giving us an anchor to something familiar when so much other stuff they knew they weren't going to be able to work with uh, because, you know, so few characters are coming, actors are coming back. But the movie loses its way as they level up to the, you know, the sequel, the number two movie, and introduce a new nemesis. And now the movie doesn't know how to choose, right? I I feel like we're left with this comical, this sort of comical, empty comical B story of Mr. Jones having to go to the bathroom while lugging around Debo and his and his um, convict buddy, and it does not, it does not play. It does not serve the story of next Friday overall. Whether or not I like it, I think it is a B story that runs in parallel, a distant parallel, and never really meets successfully to the main thread. Well, that's a really interesting point because look at both of these films; they both have two antagonists the first film the real antagonist of that film is big uh, big worm because yeah. he's the one that smoky owes the money to and that's the one that is you know their lives are threatened with the drive-by mm-hmm. and they uh, they have to get that money but so it's interesting because the overall plot story antagonist is Big Worm, but the personal antagonist for Craig is Debo. He has to overcome the the challenge, the wall that Debo is in order to get past that, get the money so that they can actually successfully pay off Big Worm and not have to worry about anything. But look how much smarter that story is architected because it they, yeah. those are narrative lines that are woven together, right? Those those exactly. come together, they intersect, we they meet, those characters are persistent in each other's story and that makes Friday work. This story, there is no weaving. There's no weaving no. at all. There's no weaving. Well, and to that end, like Craig and Day Day, like they don't even have anything to do with kind of solving the final, like beating the final boss, yeah. right? We have the the final of the, oh, um, uh, what's his name? I'm going to blank on which of the Joker brothers it is. I think it's just Joker. 
not little Joker or baby Joker, but Joker, he's the last of the Joker brothers and he's got the gun and he's pointing it at He was at the, he had the hat, right? Yeah. And he gets taken out by Debo. Yes. So right. Craig doesn't have to do anything. And then Chico takes Debo out. Yeah. So it's like, so our protagonist doesn't have to defeat anybody or kind of move in the context of storytelling. You know, you want your protagonist to overcome that obstacle on their own to kind of grow and move the story forward. And that's the most successful way to kind of build your protagonist. And in this particular case, it's like, he didn't have to do anything. No. I mean, sure, Craig was smart enough to figure out the plan as far as getting into the house and getting the money and all of that sort of stuff. But in the end, it just it doesn't get us anywhere because he doesn't have to actually defeat either of the bad guys in order to to succeed. He, he is a his character in this movie is very much a witness to history. And I'm curious what you think about movies where the protagonist is a witness to history and it works. Can you think of any? Um, well, the, the example that everybody always gives now is Raiders of the Lost Ark, because as as people say, you know, the whole ending of the film would have happened whether Indiana Jones was there or not. Right. He effectively got nothing done over the course of the film. Right. So to that end, um, I, you know, I feel like that's that's one to always call uh, for that. But otherwise, I don't know if it's because and you don't hear stories like that because characters who are a witness to history who don't necessarily have a huge role in it. I mean, Bilbo or yeah, Bilbo Baggins, I guess, in the Hobbit films in the in the end, you know, the Battle of the Five Armies, you know, he kind of is off invisible, just kind of watching this huge battle. Um, I guess, uh, but on unfold. on this, the eve that we just lost Ian home, I feel like I feel like that's sacrilege uh, that you well, even bring that up, and you should you should regret that. <laughs> um, no, it, yeah, I think you're I think you're right, but but Bilbo Baggins is so central to so so accidentally central to so many other elements in that story leading up to the end. So, yeah, it's it's a tricky it's one, a rough, right? Yeah, he's yeah, and he certainly is very crucial in the yeah. um, all the, the story plot elements involving the dragon. Yeah. So. so I don't know. I, is I there a particular it, one you're thinking there of? There isn't, and that's why I threw that out. It's hard to think. I guess Raiders of the Lost Ark is, is the closest one, and it shows why that's so hard to do, so hard to pull off those stories. And I wonder if, it, it, you know, my, my hunch is that they weren't intending to write a witness to history story when they wrote <laughs> Raiders of the Lost Ark. Uh that's my hunch. I've never heard an interview otherwise. Uh, well, I'm, it's hard to call it a, this fully a witness to history yeah. story. Uh, no, right? I get that. Because, I mean, he, yeah. No, I, I get that. But he is, like, he is just sort of peripherally involved in everybody else's narrative in a non-compelling manner. There is the bit at the end where he goes and he sneaks into the house. And, and uh, obviously, there's all sorts of, you know, confusing um, you know, crossovers there as they figure out yeah. who's who's who and upstairs, downstairs, upstairs, right. downstairs stuff, uh, uh, sort of vaudeville. But um, and and some of it's funny. This is, I feel like I might be coming down a little bit hard on the on the movie, and and I I did laugh at at pieces of the movie. It's just such a disappointment over the first one. Um, oh, yeah. there's a whole other sort of nemesis pair that we need to talk about, which is uh, the the uh, girlfriend and her sister. The the sort of instigating element of Craig's uh, strife with his car and that the car is continually vandalized, uh, both intentionally and unintentionally, uh, is another bit of of comedy in the movie that that um, I, I do find funny. But how do we what do we think of the the girlfriend, the story that she's apparently lied about her pregnancy to in, in some way entrap uh, Day Day? What do you think of all that? And, you know, it's fine. I mean, it's I guess to me that feels like the sort of characters that we would have had in the first Friday, you know, kind of these peripheral characters that have some element they're tied in. They keep coming back. I, I don't have an issue with them so much. In fact, I actually thought the bits with Baby D and Craig were pretty funny. Like, yeah. I thought that was was great. Hook, hook, hook me up with them, you know, like yeah. that whole thing. Yeah, I thought that was really funny. So that that element worked. Um, it, it was an interesting element. It's not necessarily 
uh, an integral part to the story, but I thought it set up Day Day for an interesting side story. I thought it, honestly, it, honestly, I'll take that story over anything that they did with uh, with Debo. His story was such a disappointment that at least this one gave some new life and gave me some characters that I felt like, you know what, they're not as well written as the first Friday, but this is the sort of character that the first Friday had. And uh, to that end, I appreciate these ones. Okay. I, I with you and i also support your assessment that this is a this is the story of the movie in fact i would le- i would i would uh, raise you that day day becomes the central character around which everything revolves it's his house that's going to be repossessed it's his car it's his girlfriend it's his job uh, it's his father that is most interesting in fact ice cube comes in here craig comes in here as a texture character in somebody else's movie and i think that might be a central problem that i have with it i didn't actually have it in those words before we started talking about it but that i think yeah. is my problem And, you know, I think that that's pretty interesting. The only Craig is really here because let's face it, his whole reason to come out here to get away from uh, Debo. We've already talked about how lame that part of the story is. It just doesn't fly. But Craig, as the guy who the only guy who has any semblance of a plan as to how to save Uncle Elroy and Day Day's house from being repossessed because of his uh, tax uh, evasion and stuff from their lottery winnings, that actually poses a more interesting story. Now, if they could have just found a way to really just focus on that, maybe not even deal with the Joker brothers, which, I mean, you know, they're fine. Jacob Vargas is fantastic as as the main Joker. Mm-hmm. I mean, I just, I loved him so much in this film. He's great. I mean, I think he he's playing up the stereotype maybe a little much. I think that's the script. I think yeah. Ice Cube is really pushing that to an extreme. But... He, I just think he's a fantastic actor who's done some great stuff. And I like him here. And I, but I didn't necessarily need those guys in this story. And, you know, Carla is in the story and she just feels superfluous only because the Joker brothers happen to be there. If the story focused on Uncle Elroy and Sugar, his his uh, new wife, uh, played hilariously by Kim Whitley, mm-hmm. and Day Day and Dewana and Baby D and other neighbors, like if you know if Amy Hill's uh, Mrs. Ho Kim had been given more to do, like I felt she like that would have been funny. She that would have so been a story that made something great because that would have been a much better pairing to what we had in the first Friday, which really gave me a sense of the neighborhood and of the people in it and just the craziness that happens. Then we get here because it turns into this thing where it's like you know I don't know it just it just becomes nonsensical with everything going on with Debo and the Joker brothers. it's That's not the interesting story. Everything else is. So I think that your assessment is spot on. Oh, oh thank you, sir. Let's talk one more time about John Witherspoon as Mr. Jones, because I feel like in that regard, the most of the direct callbacks to the first movie were now given to him. He got the smoky lines, right? And you know this, uh, uh, you got knocked out. Um, and. I, none of it, none of it really worked for me. He didn't. He did not have the same uh, sense and sensibility to him that made it, that made him so great in the last movie. And they didn't even give him any heart. He had no. He was a backbone element in that last movie that came out of nowhere because you think he's a Joker, yeah. and then he has that "you got to live to fight another day." Put you, put up your fist, put down the gun, kind of a moment. And we had none of that. This movie was full of guns, and it was full of of like we've just given up on having Craig be you know a, a modestly clean character uh and I think we lost something because of it yeah absolutely John Witherspoon's character was so great in that first one and here it felt like the the perfect example of what a sequel would do back then where it's just like let's take what everybody loved so much about him you know his his crapping in the bathroom and spraying the spray and all that sort of stuff and just we'll focus on that and and triple it and leave everything else out that's what they gave us yeah. and it just feels is is so disappointing because I felt like Mr. Jones 
was such a great character in that first film and it was just just didn't have a chance to do anything with this one i mean he's just you know the butt of every joke it's just it's really frustrating so uh michael rapaport is in it <laughs> yes <laughs> this is the same year yes. that he played a, a, a terrific and important character in spike lee's bamboozled i feel like it was just one of those it had to be a a role that was a like just for a yeah, friend for a sort friend, of thing, yeah. you know. I feel yeah. like yeah, yeah. There's a lot of that. It was a busy year for him. Yeah. He was in this Small Time Crooks, yep. Men of Honor, Bamboozled, Chain of Fools, King of the Jungle, Lucky Numbers, and The Sixth Day. That's right. And then he took some time off before Doctor Doolittle Two, <laughs> which is the <laughs> only thing he did <laughs> in 2001. That's right. <laughs> oh wow! Yeah. Yeah. Well, it was it was fun, just fun and funny to see him, even though and, and it, it's just hard when we've so recently watched him in Bamboozled to see him in this movie. Um, yeah, so. yeah, really was. It, you know, it's I mean, it's a great cast, though. I mean, I do like the people like I think Day Day wasn't as well written as Smokey, uh, but I did like that he was kind of this cowardly character. You know, he didn't stick with me very well, but I at least felt like I could see who this guy was. Uncle Elroy and uh, and Sugar were uh, just kind of a pretty funny pair. Mm -hmm. I, I, you know, the the Joker brothers, meh. I mean, Jacob Var Vargas is the one who I really remember. Um, but on the whole, I mean, I thought they, I thought they picked a pretty good, uh, you know, uh, group of people to be in this one. We should talk about why we lost Chris Tucker. Yeah, yeah, that was kind of disappointing. Uh, there's two stories, which I think is interesting. The first one is he says that he did never he never got paid for the first film, so refused to be in this one, which I think is interesting. Uh, what the what seems to be more the general consensus is that he had actually become a born again Christian shortly after. I think he did. Um, I can't remember which movie. It was like 97 or so. And uh, he wouldn't do any projects that involved swearing and drugs. And kind of all that dropped out. And really, all he did from 1998 to 2007 was the three Rush Hour films. And I mean, he, he was making so much money. He had become the highest paid actor at that point, uh, earning $25 million for that third Rush Hour film that he didn't really need to do anything else. So, um, yeah, I... Uh, uh, I guess that's that's why we don't have uh, Smokey in this film. Wow. Yeah, he has not, even since then, right? He's just got Silver Linings Playbook and Billy Lynn's Halftime uh, Walk. I know we talked about that last yeah, time, but right. it's, it's been he, short. That's a shame. Yeah, has, has not done much. Yeah. I don't know what else he's doing. I don't know if he's back doing stand-up. I'm not sure. Um, but... Uh, you know, I, I don't know if there was anything that ever happened, like as far as a fallout between him and Cube, but um, I hope not. You know, it, it'd be great to see him find a way back into these at some point. Although it probably doesn't make sense based on his beliefs now, but I just, I felt like having Smokey was just such a great part of the. Oh, he was kind of such the, a fantastic balance to Cube's yeah. Craig. So great. Yeah. Um, well, that, like you said, that's the thing with Craig is he is very much the straight man and building a comedy around him without him. You're relying on all these other characters to bring that energy. And I just don't feel like they quite ever get there. I, I feel like it's uh, I, I feel like it's probably direction because I think Mike Epps is absolutely capable of pulling that kind of performance. And I would love to see this movie in uh, with him given the opportunity to do that, to be directed to do that, because it could be really great. Yeah, that's interesting that you bring that up. And I think we should talk about Steve Carr now, who yeah. did direct this. Very much like F. Gary Gray in the previous film, he came on this uh, really out of the music video industry. And he had been doing stuff. Well, I think he actually started doing like album artwork with uh, Def Jam. And he did all then the album artwork for Def Jam. Yeah, yeah. Right, right. And then he went on to to start doing music videos. And then I think through that, Cube somehow got a hold of him and this was his directorial debut. And then, you know, <laughs> I think his output afterward may speak to just the direction that he's gone with his career as opposed to to uh, F. Gary Gray, who, I mean, his career also has, has a lot of projects in it that feel very much like... Um, 
you know, director for hire sorts of things. But I think he does throw things in there periodically that feel a little stronger. In the case of Steve Carr, it's like, okay, Dr. Doolittle 2, you just mentioned. Daddy Daycare, Rebound, Are We Done Yet? Paul Blart Mall Cop, one of the segments in Movie 43, Middle School, The Worst Years of My Life, and Freaky Friday. That's his output. It, yeah. it just, I feel like he's become the the kind of the dumb comedy that, uh, you know, forgettable studio comedies that they just kind of crank out. And he's kind of one of those guys who cranks that stuff out. Now. Also, making movies is hard. And so <laughs> we know all movies need to be like there. Yes. It takes a, a village. Uh, I, I think this one is is rough. Yes, it is. You, know, you want to talk about Cube Vision? It's still kicking. You know, Ice Cube is still producing uh, films and TV uh, with his company, with his partner, Matt Alvarez. They uh, started with this, and then through the 2000s and the 2010s, they've been making films, although the output has slowed down in the 2010s quite a bit. They only produce five films. A lot of it is kind of the comedies, like the barbershop films, which I really enjoy those. Mm-hmm. That's, that's a series I would think would be fun to jump into. The um, they did the Are We There Yet? Are We Done Yet? They did um, Straight Out of Compton a few years ago, and uh, you know the the TV has been real slim. The, actually, you know what's interesting? They're scheduled to do a new take on Oliver Twist with Walt Disney. That is really interesting. That would be, yeah, that'll be something to catch. What is that going to be? Yeah, but then as TV, you know, they're still <laughs> doing the hip hip hop spurs. I just read I I that and I hadn't caught this, but one of the the um, uh, Steve Carr got one of the videos that he directed was um, it's a hard knock life. Jay Z, <laughs> I I oh. feel like you just described what that uh, Cube Vision Oliver Twist is going to be. <laughs> Jay Z's hard right. knock life. Yeah. I'm very curious. I can't wait. Very yeah. curious. But they are their current project that they're still doing is Hip Hop Squares, which is the um, the kind of revived version of the Hollywood Squares um, that has been on TV since 2017. So, so they're still they're still busy, still doing stuff. You know, I feel like um, there's been some controversy because of my opinion of the uh, music of one Terrence Blanchard. Mm. I really like Terrence Blanchard's scores very, very much. And I am on the record as saying I think his score for Defy Bloods was terrific. And everyone disagrees with me. Uh, And so I I guess in a spate of redemption, what did you think of his score here? He's He's a composer that I think can write some really strong themes, but I also feel like his music doesn't always hit right with me it just like i think that there's something interesting there but i feel like okay i'm not quite and maybe it's because i like something you know i'm one of those guys i kind of like the emotion coming from my music you know i love the john williams sorts of scores and sometimes his stuff feels very jazzy and it has this great feel to it but i'm like well it doesn't quite fit i did just rewatch inside man and i'm like you know what his music works really well there Yeah. yeah And so I I feel like he's a composer that is a little up and down with me. In the case of this film, you know, it's kind of a comedy score. I don't, I didn't find any problem with it. And honestly, I don't remember a lot of the score. I mostly remember the soundtrack because there are just, I mean, it was like the last film, a lot of great music pumping through, uh, through this film from beginning to end. And so, you know, I don't know. I guess that's where my brain is when it comes to the music. All right. Well, I'll give that to you. This is still pretty early in his um, in his scoring career, uh, but not really. Well, I well, I mean, he two thousand two thousand. Yeah, I guess you're right. He'd, he'd done probably twenty movies, fifteen twenty movies, but it, it was still very much up and down. And th- this feels to me like a whole set of really great kind of incomplete comic themes. I I think it's hard to listen to because none of them get used enough to be able to develop um, uh, sort of a voice, but it works very well in isolation. All these little tracks, um, they're great cues. So, yeah, yeah, what are you going to do? Hey, I got a question for you. Sure. So there's a scene in the film when Carla comes home Mm -hmm. and this is where Craig and Day Day where Craig sees her for the first time and they're just like looking at her over the top of the car and watching her and the music plays in slow motion as she walks and all that sort of stuff and and she looks over and says hi and they do hey the two of them 
is that where you know it's it, that's a very common thing these days yeah. doing the the two people or multiple people going hey, hey yeah is that is this where that came from or am i just like or did it come from somewhere else or is it just a thing and i've just never realized it because it felt like like they did that when when craig and day day do that i'm like wait a minute that's totally like that's a that could be a thing yeah, it's not. It might not be the by Felicia no. sort of level, but still, I was like, I feel like maybe it is a thing. It it could be because there's also the hey hey Craig hey yeah it could be I don't know I I am not um, I'm not one to <laughs> to count on, uh, to count on for uh, uh, research on that, but I will say that it's everywhere. All I can well, find I are, are horse memes that say, oh, yeah, it's Friday or, hey, it's Friday. <laughs> I have one last cast note before we yeah. move on. So we have we have Roach, who is the kind of <laughs> this is possibly the most hilarious, ironic casting choice in the movie. He's a very funny guy. He's the, like the, the lone white guy who Day Day works with and uh, and gets high with. Uh, he's a pretty funny character. Did you like did you like Roach? Oh, totally. Yes. Okay. Yeah, I did too. I thought he was great. What's interesting and tragic about uh, about this particular actor, Justin Pierce plays him. He's uh, he actually died a little bit after this film was uh, was released. The uh, he it was later that year he actually committed suicide by hanging himself. So a little bit of a little bit of a sad story. All right. Him. Look. That's not why I said he was hilarious and ironic. <laughs> I want that on the record. That was the no, no, wrong no. <laughs> toss that I just gave you for that story, and I regret it. But I will say that I thought it was so funny because Justin Pierce, one of the things he's known for is being a, a quite an exemplary skateboarder. And they kept having him fall off his skateboard, and I think that's a riot. And his skateboard gets, gets run over. run over. <laughs> like, it's just one thing after another. This poor guy couldn't couldn't stay on his board and he's actually quite something so anyway yeah that's actually at the after the uh the service um the different people who or they had a memorial for him that where they went to a, uh, a skate park and um or they had the memorial at the skate park that he yeah hung out at so Ugh, really sad really sad yeah how to do it award season not good. Not good. It had <laughs> two nominations at the MTV Movie and TV Awards. Ice Cube did get nominated for Best Comedic Performance, interestingly, but lost to Adam Sandler for Big Daddy. Also losing was uh, Mike Myers for Austin Powers' The Spy Who Shagged Me. Wow. Interesting. Interesting pairing. The other award was the Stinkers Bad Movie Awards. It got uh, nominated for the remake or sequel Nobody Was Clamoring for Stinker Award. Um, unfortunately or fortunately, however you view it, they lost to Book of Shadows, Blair Witch 2. That really is a sequel nobody was clamoring for. Book of Shadows. That's, <laughs> That's a legit true. win. Yeah. That is. How about at the box true. office? Well, Carr got a big bump in his budget for this sequel, getting $11 million to play with, which is almost $16.4 million in today's dollars. The movie opened January 12, 2000, kind of the dumping ground, opposite Supernova and the limited release of The Terrorist. But that didn't hurt it. It landed in the number one spot, which it held for another week. This one only stayed in the top 10 for four weeks, but it went on to gross $57.3 million domestically and almost $2.5 million internationally, giving it a total adjusted gross of $89.1 million, making this the highest grossing film in the franchise. It lands an adjusted profit per finished minute of $740 $42,000, also the highest in the series, but with a higher budget, it can't beat the original's profit-to-cost ratio. All right, we gotta we gotta take it to the mat, Andy. We do, yes, indeed. Head over to flickchart.com/slash/the-next-reel. You'll see all the movies that we've talked about on this very show. If you swipe over in your show notes and you tap the word flickchart, it should take you straight to this movie in flickcharts database, where you can add it to your list and see how it stacks up against ours. All right, first up, next Friday, or The Birdcage. The Birdcage. The Birdcage. Next up, we have next Friday, or The Host. Some Bong Joon-ho. Yeah, the Host. The Host, indeed. Next Friday, or the remake of The Thomas Crown Affair. Uh, Thomas Crown Affair. I will take Thomas Crown as well. 
next Friday or Diane Keaton, the little drummer girl. Um, I, I think there's a good chance I'd watch next Friday first. Me too. Next Friday or the dead zone. I'd give that one to the dead zone. Dead zone. Indeed. Next Friday or battle for the planet of the apes. Battle for the planet of the apes. I will say battle for the planet of the apes as well. Next Friday or the Andromeda strain. Oh, that one was disappointing. Uh, I'd still take it. Yeah, I would too. It was just not what I remembered. Yeah. Next Friday or the Hound of the Baskervilles. Oh, your favorite those dogs. Dogs. I'd probably watch next Friday. Um, I. I hmm. I'm not going to fight you on it. Whatever you decide. I will say the Hound of the Baskervilles. All right. Next Friday or dinner for schmucks. Um, I will take dinner for schmucks. Yeah, I will too. It's got problems, but. All right. Well, that puts next Friday in spot 431 on our chart. 431 out of 459 is about a 6%. Pretty low. That's pretty low. I ran into many problems. Uh, actually, this was an incredibly easy rank for me because it, just everything it hit, I would rather watch every single thing. And I think that's unfortunate because this is a movie, like I said, I laughed at parts of this movie. It's not the worst movie I have ever seen by a long shot. How did it end up on your list? Yeah, I ran into a very similar problem. I, it just kept dropping. And I'm like, well, I'd watch that first. And or I, that's better. There's There are elements in this that work, but just not well enough to, to beat much on my chart. It landed in spot 4,332 out of 4,388, which is about a 1%. Well, Andy, as it happens, mine landed at a 1,455 out of 1,455. It is the bottom <laughs> of my list. And that's very frustrating. It's a 0%. It should be a zero star over at letterbox.com slash the next reel. And I don't think it deserves to be a zero star. I, I think I could see this at a one and a half star maybe and feel pretty good about it. Yeah, that's about where I am with this one. I feel like if they could have really developed the story, developed the characters in the suburbs and made it feel like this is a story of the suburbs as opposed to a story of the city, like it really could have connected. And I just felt like it never quite got there because, you know, Pot smoking in the suburbs and the idea of things going on in the suburbs, like your friend yeah. at the very beginning, in this the crazy story behind everybody's doors, that it, it could have really been something that took the, the story from the first one and did something unique with it and would have been a lot of fun. So it's it's very disappointing. But there are characters in it that I'm like, gosh, they're they're getting close with these guys. They make me laugh. Sugar made me laugh. She yeah. was a funny one. She was funny. You know, they, oh. they had those characters that were in here. And if they could have just given the story more of that, then it really would have been something great. Now, I, so. I have yet to see the what's coming up, our, our, our next film, Friday After Next. I have yet to see it. But I have heard, even though it comes in at a 5.8, it does not crest the six start. And this movie, next Friday, does. It, on, on IMDb, it's a 6.2. So this one falls below the uh, the six star. But I, what I have heard is that it this third one is actually a better movie. And so I'm, I'm anxious and nervous. I'm, I'm a Twitter. You are a Twitter. I'm curious to see what they do also. It's a Christmas movie, too, which is, uh, I, I'm not sure how much that even <laughs> matters. Yeah. Um, and it is another film directed by a first-time music, music video director. So uh, I guess we'll find out next week. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. Amazon giveth, Andrew. As Amazon always do. What is the deal, man? Amazon is crushing it with this movie. They are yeah, delivering it. it on time. No, they're not broken. The DVDs are in great shape. What is happening?
<laughs> they're, they're not uh, they're not uh, ripped versions of it. <laughs> they're in they're in the advertised language, Andy. This is insanity. <laughs> Uh, we obviously, we, uh, weren't crazy about the movie. And so we went to the top of the barrel to the five stars and there were a lot of them. We are an Island. Oh, mm. smokes. Andy. Yes, I know. 83% five stars. We saw a different movie. I worry. Yeah. Uh, would you like to start? Sure. I'll start. I've got a five star by jazz who says, uh, slapstick that I like. I just like this movie. I can't lie. I don't have anything critical to say about it. It is what it is and has been since when I was younger. It's funny and an easy laugh. If you are looking for subtle and low-key of the British comedy variety, sometimes, then look elsewhere. This is pretty overt and slapstick, but I still love it. <laughs> That's good. Jazz is a new character I need to note. Uh, well, I'm, I'm never going to remember all these characters, but yes, note it. Let me see here what I can do. Are you ready? I'm ready. Excellent. Especially when high or playing it as background noise during a smash. <laughs> How'd I do? That was a five star get, from good. Camille, yeah. who says this you is an exhale. excellent movie. <sighs> I forgot to exhale. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I, the problem is water was pouring down my face. <laughs> my gag took over. <laughs> oh, thanks, Amazon. <laughs> uh, except for the problem is, here's my problem. You haven't ranked I it. I haven't yet. ranked it yet. All right. Clickety clickety click. Clickety clickety click click click. <laughs> Add to my flick chart. Do a little live flick charting. Oh dear. It's starting, sadly. Bow, mm. bow, bow, bow. <laughs> <laughs> uh did we like side effects? I think we liked side effects. Yeah, it's all right. We liked it better than next Friday. Oh yes. There are a lot. It turns out there are a lot of movies I like better than this. Yeah. All of them. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, about that. Lady Vengeance. <gasps> Andy. Hmm. I don't know what to do. Under the cherry moon. We're recording, <laughs> and I don't know what to do here. Next Friday versus 2001. Oh, God. Oh, my God. Oh, you actually said that out loud. People are going to hear you. I want you to know, I want you to know that I am going to pick 2001. Thank you. But, boy. I would really have felt lost. That puts it in an interesting place. <laughs> okay. All right. Head over to flickchart.com. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> You know what I got the other day, Pete? Stephen King's latest. Want to borrow it? Do you know who you're talking to? What do you mean? Andy, when's the last time I read a paper book? It's been like decades. I would much rather use Kindle, or better yet, Audible. What am I thinking? I don't read paper books anymore either. I am an audiobook guy all the way. For those of you looking to listen to the books behind the films we talk about here on The Next Reel, get a free audiobook download and 30-day free trial at thenextreel.com slash audible. It's the way to go. All right, we're going to play a little game. I'm going to name a series from season 10, and you try to guess how many movies from it were adaptations. 10 seasons of this. I should be a pro by now. First up, David Fincher. This was a member bonus. Gone Girl. Aquatic Killers. Mm, certainly not Tentacles. <laughs> oh, In the Heart of the Sea. Nice. Here's another member bonus. John le Carre. Uh, uh, the Russia House. Oh, I love that score so much. Here's a tough one. Soviet science fiction. Ooh, uh, I have no idea. All of them? Not quite. Just Dead Mountaineers Hotel. Awesome. We've covered lots of great movies that started out as books, plays, even comics. Sources like Ivanhoe, Conan the Barbarian, Eight Million Ways to Die, The Hot Rock, Born on the Fourth of July. American Psycho, The Shawshank Redemption. The Green Mile, The Mist, The Big Heat, and Naked Lunch. So many great movies from so many great sources, and they're all on Audible. Producing this podcast is a lot of fun, but takes a lot of time. 
We've dropped the dynamically inserted ads because they're so annoying and have no connection to our content. Plus, they just jam those things in wherever they see fit. We listened to you when you said you didn't like them. So now we're directly appealing to you, our dear listener. Please consider an Audible subscription to help support The Next Reel and our family of podcasts. I have been using Audible along with my family for decades now. I love it, and I have read hundreds of books through it. I couldn't be more pleased with their service, and I know you'll love it too. Head to thenextreel.com slash audible and get your free trial. It really helps us out, and you have a world of over 200,000 audiobooks open to you. So much great material available. Dive in with a free 30-day trial at thenextreel.com slash audible. Start listening to amazing audiobooks of your favorite movie source material with your first free audiobook today. That's thenextreel.com slash audible.